Last week we began a new series, Biblical Church Leadership, and we're talking about the biblical pattern, the biblical mandate uh, for what church leadership in the organizational structure should look like and how that should function. And last week we talked about the very clear, undeniable distinction between the offices that Christ set up for the church to lead the church, and that's elders and deacons, not, not a combination of, of the two into this one hybrid uh, that so many uh, churches have, including our own, functioned in for so long, but rather uh, the distinction that is intentional there. We looked at that and talked about that extensively, and we're going to continue on in that series uh, as we are starting the process and the conversations and the pieces to make that transition uh, into the biblical eldership model of church leadership here. There's a lot that's going to happen between now and that point, whenever that point actually comes, as the Lord directs and as as His Spirit enables. Uh, But we want to start that process, and we want to start those conversations, and that's what we're doing. And it may very well be that uh, some of you have a question in your mind as to uh, why that should be so important? Why should that be the priority that it is? Why should we spend so much time talking about it? I mean, why devote an entire series to this concept? Aren't there so many more important things that take precedence over something like church government, church leadership that we should be focusing all our attention on? And uh, I hear that, and, and I can even understand why that may be the conclusion you come to, if that's you. Uh, and I'm not the only one who understands that. The person that wrote the book that I referred to last week and recommended to you, uh, Why Elders Why Elders by Benjamin Merkel, which I still hope to make available to you. Uh, but in the meantime, I really encourage you to try to find your own copy of this as we go through this series and then after the series. It's going to be just a, a valuable resource for all of us to, to have and to be looking at. And he acknowledges what I just said, that um, there are definitely questions that come up about this kind of topic and, and why spend so much time and emphasis on it. Uh, he admits that this topic, while important, is not by any means the most important issue facing the church. It's not the paramount thing uh, by any means. I mean, the deity of Christ, justification by faith alone, uh, the, the inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, all those things admittedly take precedence over this topic. And if you were to stack them in order of importance, then certainly those things would be more important up on the scale. But, But, I want you to listen to what he says along with that. Just because a topic may not be the most important, does not make it unimportant. Just because a topic may not be the most important, does not make it unimportant. As we will see, the form of church government that a local congregation employs is extremely relevant to the life and health of the church. The church, as the body and bride of Christ, should seek to be pure and spotless. If certain biblical patterns and principles are ignored or abandoned, then the church will reap negative consequences. Therefore, it is beneficial for the church to follow the wisdom of God as recorded in Scripture. 
Church government is important, not primarily because outward structures are important, but because outward structures directly affect who can be a leader in the church, what each leader does, and to whom each leader is accountable. Thus, when we speak of church government or church polity, we are really speaking of the roles, duties, and qualifications of those who lead the body of Christ. So, that is something that I agree with and I think is, is really very well stated as the reason why these discussions and what we're talking about in this series, why that's so, so important, vital, really, for the health of this local body and for being biblically aligned, which we certainly want to be. So just a little bit of a note there as to why the emphasis is being made the way it is. So as we go ahead in the series today, uh, we're talking about what elders must do. What elders must do. And this is really part one of this consideration. What elders must do. Just part one. Uh, there's so much about what elders must do and the way they must do it. Uh, it was just too much to try to cram into one message. So uh, within this series, we're going to have a two-part uh, approach and a two-part focus on this, this topic and concept of what elders must do. And uh, as we said last week, elder, uh, the, the Greek word episkopos, it literally means overseer or shepherd. Overseer or shepherd. And certainly there is no greater example of, of a shepherd and what that means and what that should look like uh, as we seek to be overseers, those of us who are that. There's no greater example for us in leadership or for anyone than the good shepherd. The good shepherd. So in John 10, 11-13, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd, as the ultimate shepherd, the supreme shepherd. And he says this as recorded in John 10, 11-13. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, the worker, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, it's just a job for him, it's just a wage, there's not ownership. Since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, he leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. In other words, there's not that personal stake in the flock for the hired hand. There's not that ownership. There's not a, a personal deep affection or love for the sheep that he's in charge of because he's not the shepherd. And the Apostle Peter challenged those in leadership to follow and apply the pattern of the good shepherd that Jesus pointed to uh, that he himself certainly was the ultimate example of. And, and that, I, that obviously struck Peter, and it stayed with him, because years, years later, as he wrote his epistle, he challenged all those in leadership, all who are overseers, the elders, the shepherds of the church, he challenged us to follow and apply that pattern 
And by extension, the challenge would be for the local church under the overseer to make sure that their elders and overseers are following that pattern, that example of the good shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, 1-3, through the Apostle Peter says this, 1 Peter 5, 1-3, through verse 1, he says, I exhort, I challenge, I, I commend the elders, plural, among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. And here's his challenge. Shepherd God's flock among you. Shepherd God's flock among you. Not overseeing out of compulsion. Oh, I have to do this. I, I must do this, and so I will. He's saying, don't, don't oversee. Don't shepherd out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money. Don't look at it as just a, a job, just as a means of gain. But eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. So he's saying, elders, you're shepherds. You're shepherds over, over God's flock, over Christ's flock. You're, you're actually supposed to be functioning as, as a shepherd, a, a caring, loving, nurturing shepherd over those that God has given you. And you need to do that with with humility and with love and with eagerness and with a willing spirit, not out of compulsion and not in a dictatorial manner. Being examples of how the good shepherd would shepherd and does shepherd his flock. And I just see Peter's thoughts going back to when Jesus restored him to leadership after his disastrous failing of the Lord as he denied the Lord those three times. You know, after saying, oh, I'll never deny you, Jesus. I'll never leave you. These other people, my, the other disciples, they may let you down. They may deny you. They may run and hide, but I never will. And Jesus said, oh, no, you, you, you're going to. Wait and see. He did, of course, denied that he knew Christ, that he was identified or aligned with him. We talked about that a few weeks ago before we started this series and how beautiful it was when Jesus came to Peter, met Peter where he was in his failure, lifted him up out of that failure and restored him to the place of leadership and a place of being an overseer, an elder, the first one really, in the church. And I just see Peter's thoughts going back to that as he's talking about Hey, you other elders, you other overseers, shepherd, be a shepherd to the flock. Shepherd them well. I see his thoughts going back to when Jesus said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And every time Peter replied, yes, Jesus said, okay, then feed my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Feed my sheep. And the reason Peter is so careful to instruct his fellow elders and, and all the elders who would come after to be that shepherd is because elders of the church are shepherds for the church. That's the primary role of every elder. Shepherds for the church. And a good shepherd is going to guard and guide and provide for the sheep. They're going to guard, guide, and provide for the sheep. That's, that's the role 
and the function of, of any good shepherd, and that's what the role and function of the elder in, in the church is going to be and should be. And guarding and guiding and providing, it can be a messy, messy thing to have to do. Uh, it's not going to be easy. It's pretty much never-ending. It can be lonely. It can be exhausting and stressful. But that's what every elder is called to. And that is another reason why Christ has made it so clear and the Holy Spirit has made it so clear as He has inspired the writers of Scripture to make sure to talk about this this concept in the plural. That's why it is so important that there is a plurality of elders, that it's not left to any one or even two or three to do the work of the eldership or the work of shepherding the church. Because guarding and guiding and providing for the sheep is so all-encompassing and it's so broad and far-reaching and so demanding and so vital. It makes sense, doesn't it, that there would be more than one or more than two or even more than three elders doing that? That there would be a multitude and a host of shepherds shepherding the church when it's that important? When so much is riding on the church being shepherded well? There should be many, many shepherds doing that work. Not just one, not just two, not even three. The good shepherd guards, guides, and provides for the sheep. And we're going to be looking at uh, some specific ways that is to happen and what that looks like and how that is fleshed out um, as we are looking at this two-part focus on this emphasis of what elders are to do. And as we start looking at this in a more detailed way, uh, I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 20. And specifically, this is going to connect to the concept of the good shepherd guarding, guarding the sheep. Acts chapter 20. And as you're making your way there to that passage, I just want to remind you what we just looked at as we began the message here this morning. Uh, Jesus talking about the fact that a hired hand, when the wolf comes to get the sheep, he doesn't stand and defend. He runs away. He leaves the sheep. And the wolf then has total freedom to snatch and scatter the whole flock. I want you to keep that in mind and keep what Peter said in mind about uh, the elder being the shepherd of the flock. Keep all that in mind as we look at what Uh, we find here in Acts chapter 20. So Acts chapter 20, first verse 17, then we're going to jump ahead to verses 28 and to uh, 31. But beginning in verse 17 of Acts 20, says this, this is the record of Dr. Luke, as he's making record of the journeys of Paul and Barnabas, and certainly he was there with them as an eyewitness. And verse 17 says this, Now from Miletus he sent he being Paul, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. 
So eldership is something that's clearly established at this point. It began in Jerusalem at the start of the church. And as other churches were planted, uh, as Paul and Barnabas went through Asia Minor planning and establishing churches, they established the eldership. And that just continued and it flourished and it became the pattern and the foundation for every church. It wasn't limited to just one. It's not like the Jerusalem church had elders but nobody else did. It was understood that every future church would have eldership as its leadership. And so from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, the Apostle Paul sent to Ephesus, and he summons the elders of the church to come to him, to meet him there in Miletus. This is at the end of his third missionary journey. Verse 28, we're going to skip ahead to that. Verse 28, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Uh, instructed the elders and reminded them of and encouraged them to make sure they did. Verse 28, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, says, be on guard. Remember I said one of the, the main emphasis for any good shepherd, one of the main aspects of their duty is to guard the sheep, right? He says, be on guard. Guard. That's being intentionally and constantly aware of what's going on in the flock under your care. Being intentionally, constantly aware of what's going on in the flock under your care. Be on guard, he says, for yourselves. Be on guard for your own life. Guard your own heart. Guard your own mind. Guard your own spirit, my fellow elders. That's what Paul's saying. Be on guard for yourselves, but not just yourselves. Notice what he says. And for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Speaking of Jesus. So, Paul is saying you need to remember that you are, you are an elder and you have been appointed as an elder of the church, not by me, not by Barnabas, but rather through us, or whoever else did the appointing, through us, the Holy Spirit of God Himself appointed you to that position of being an overseer, of being an elder, of being a shepherd. So church, that's something that we all need to be very, very aware of and mindful of. That's why it is such a solemn thing that someone would be appointed to that office. And that's why it needs to be taken seriously, not lightly. It needs to be something that is revered. Because the office of elder is an appointment by none other than God Himself, specifically God the Holy Spirit, as He calls certain ones out of the general or the overall church. He calls certain men out and raises them up to lead, to guide, to to guard, to shepherd the rest of the church. It is a solemn, sacred role and responsibility. And so he says, be on guard, be intentional, be constantly aware for yourselves first and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. And what is the the role and the duty of the overseer, the elder? It's to shepherd, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church that Jesus instituted at the cost of his own blood. That was the purchase price 
of the church is the blood of our Savior. Therefore, we need to take it seriously. We need to love it. And we need to make sure that the way in which we go about functioning and leadership and what that looks like, that is of utmost importance as well. And then verse 29, he says this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's why they have to be on guard and alert. Because the wolves are always looking for opportunities to come in and snatch the unsuspecting sheep. Verse 30, men will rise up even from your own number. Even from within your church. It's not just enemies from outside that you've got to be aware of, he says. People from within, men even from your own number, will rise up and distort, manipulate, twist, pervert the truth to lure the disciples into following them. That church is always, always the danger we need to be most aware of. Because what the enemy has always sought to do from the very beginning in the garden, he has sought to take the truth of God and not just obliterate it, not just throw it away and say, oh, don't look at that, don't listen to what God says, let's just ignore the truth of God entirely. No, that's not Satan's way. He is much more scheming than that. What he has always done and always will do is take the truth of God and distort it. He'll blur it. He'll twist it just enough to suit his own strategies and his purposes while allowing enough of it to remain that it sounds like the truth to us. That's his way. That's his way. That's why so many cults are able to attract and draw people who have been part of solid, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches for years, and yet they're able to leave that and come into what is absolutely a cult situation. It's because that's what Satan's strategy is, is to take the truth and distort it. And the Apostle Paul drew attention to that. He said, don't, don't look just for the people outside of you Don't just be on guard for enemies from outside. Be on guard from within because they will rise up. They'll distort the truth. And the purpose of that is the next part of this statement, to lure the disciples into following them. Think of a fishing lure that you might use to attract the fish to the hook. Think of the bait that draws the fish into that that hook, and then it's 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 a really bad day for the fish, right? He said that's what happens when the the truth is distorted. The goal is to use that distortion to lure even the disciples, the followers of Christ, away from the truth of Christ and to following a lie, to following falsehood. Verse 31, Therefore, in light of that risk, he says, because that's constantly a risk, you need to be constantly on alert. That, that, that risk and that possibility is going to constantly be present. Therefore, verse 31, be on the alert, be on guard, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. 
Paul said, when I was with you, when I was ministering to you, when I was building you up, remember, I constantly warned you, be aware, be on alert, be on guard for the twisting and the distorting of truth even from among you. I never stopped warning you with tears. Paul said, I was so consumed that you would be on alert for, for these subtle twistings and distortions of truth that it caused me to be so overwhelmed by that that I was in tears as I warned you. Why was Paul so passionate about this? Why was this such a priority? Why did he want the elders of the church that, that he had left to continue to be so on guard and on alert? It's because Paul knew that distracted shepherds can quickly cause disaster for the sheep. Distracted shepherds can quickly cause disaster for the for the sheep. And that's another reason, church, why it's so important that the, the eldership and the overseeing and the shepherding of the church doesn't rely on and isn't, isn't put on the shoulders of just one person, or even just two, or just three, that we have a plurality of elders overseeing and shepherding together. Because what that enables is for, first of all, for the elders and shepherds to be shepherding one another. It allows each elder and each overseer to be looking out for their fellow elder and, and monitoring their life and being on guard and for them and their, their life, and then they are doing that for them. And so it, it's this mutual shepherding that's going on within the shepherds that enables and empowers them to together shepherd the church well. You see that? You see that connection, how that fits? So, I mean, if I have a group of elders around me, then that should fill you with confidence and encouragement to know that your pastor is being pastored by others along with him, his fellow elders. And that all that are leading you are being led by one another mutually, completely, equally. That's the intention and the church, the, the congregation, the body, is always, always going to be so much better off when that's what is happening within them. Paul definitely knew what he was talking about with this warning. Seven years before this warning to these elders of the Ephesus church, seven years before this, here in Acts chapter 20 where we are, um, seven years prior Luke records in Acts 15 that Paul had first-hand experience with the start of the Judaizer problem. The Judaizers were people that plagued Paul and Barnabas and, and all of the leaders of the church throughout uh, the, the start of the church, throughout the first century and then beyond. Uh, the Judaizers were a very real problem. And if you know Paul's epistles at all, he, he constantly is referring to the church being on alert and on guard against them. And he's constantly telling the leadership of the church, the elders and shepherds of the church, to rebuke the Judaizers as they come in. And this was the start of that problem in Acts 15. Paul had firsthand experience with that because other Jews... Um, claiming to be Christians, came down to the new Gentile believers in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were, and they told them, hey, it's great that you guys have come to Christ. That's wonderful. You've accepted Him as the Messiah. Here's the thing, though. 
You're going to have to keep the rituals and traditions under the law of Moses to be really saved. To be fully saved. Like you're, you're kind of like partially saved now and that's good, but you, you want to be fully saved? You're going to have to actually convert to Judaism and place yourself under the law and make sure you observe all the rituals and traditions of Moses, especially that one regulation called circumcision. That's what it all comes down to. You've got to be circumcised because if not, you're not going to be fully saved. Sorry about that. And Paul and Barnabas, I mean, immediately jumped on that and said, no, 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 it's not the case. It's not Jesus and, it's Jesus only. But they kept on going and they they were starting to influence this baby church. And, And it became such an issue that the church of Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to the elders of the church for them to decide what to do about this. For them to have a a discussion and a meeting and decide and make a judgment on what should be established for not just the Antioch church, but all the Gentile believers. In other words, do they need to subscribe to the laws of Moses or are they free from it? And it was the elders that were given that job to make a decision on this very, very important matter. And so Paul and Barnabas, they refuted it. They took it to the church in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem council was convened. And the result of that, long story short, is they said, no, there's, there's no need to put this burden on this or any other church to keep the law because Christ freed us from the law. And so it was as a result of the, the plurality of elders under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that they rightly decided, no, let's not impose those burdens on the Antioch church or anyone else. But it was that, that role, that beautiful picture of not a shepherd, but shepherds working together to solve that very real problem and issue. And, and as it went on through the, the rest of the, the history of the early church, it was constantly something that the elders had to battle and deal with. So Paul definitely knew what he was talking about, and that warning was right, and it's a warning we need to heed today. Church, don't make the mistake of thinking that just because of when we are as a church, when we are, 2022, or where we are, wild, wonderful West Virginia, that the danger of deception isn't real. Don't be lulled into this false sense of safety that says just because we're a small congregation in a small town that is by nature, traditionally, pretty conservative and you know, has this heritage, don't assume that that means that we are not susceptible to the dangers even from within that Paul challenged the Ephesian elders to be aware of. Because it starts small and it starts subtly and quickly before you know it, you have a full-blown wildfire raging, a wildfire of error and falsehood. And there are so many examples of churches all throughout our area where every single Sunday, or whenever they meet, unfortunately, What they hear 
is a twisting and a distorting of the truth rather than an upholding of it. And it is so, so easy for it to happen. It starts small and it starts subtly. And that's why we need to be constantly on guard, constantly aware, and it's why we need multiple eyes being opened and alert to that danger, not just one or two or three. Well, I want to I leave you with this thought. As I said, this is part one of what elders must do. And we're going to look at more of the detail of that next week. We're talking today about being on guard. You know, that, that shepherds, elders and shepherds are to be on guard. They're supposed to guard the flock. Next week, we're going to look in more detail of how that happens and, and the resources that we need to use as we guard the flock. But I just want to leave you with this thought. And to me, it's a, it's a beautiful, amazing thought and reality. And as we look at eldership and as we understand that concept and we think about it, I want you to remember this. Eldership is a picture of the grace of the Good Shepherd in using weak, messy sheep to shepherd the others in his flock. That's what eldership is. At the end of the day, as we go through all the details of it and, and we, we go deep into this concept and what elders must do and what elders must be in terms of the requirements of their office, I mean, we're going to go in, in a more detailed manner. But as we do that, I just want you to keep this picture in mind that eldership is a picture of the grace of the good shepherd in using weak, messy sheep to shepherd the others in his flock. We elders, um, we're not by any means perfect. We're not in ourselves in any way superior to you, the flock, that we are supposed to be overseeing and shepherding. We're sheep too. And messy sheep at that. I mean, I think you would be able to readily admit and agree with the fact that even on your best day, you're a little bit of a mess. You'd agree with that, right? You know yourself. You know your mind. You know your heart. You know your tendencies. You know your weaknesses. You know what trips you up. You're a mess. So am I. So am I. And isn't it beautiful and amazing to, to think and to know that Jesus knows that too and yet calls certain ones out and says, You're a stinky, stubborn, messy sheep, but I'm going to equip you, and I'm going to send you back to the flock, and I'm going to use you as my shepherd to shepherd my flock. What a privilege. What an undeserved privilege that is. But it's one that is absolutely essential, and it's absolutely part of the the, the picture of the overall church. It's what's intended. And last, lastly, I just want to say, would you please, please commit to praying? Uh, if you don't already, if you haven't already, please commit to praying for me, for Pastor Matthew, for Pastor Scott. Uh, we're, by all intents and purposes, already elders, but we're by no means enough. And that's a big part of why we're starting down this road of, of this process 
to be more in line biblically with the picture of church leadership, but also functionally, practically, to be a better, a better source of church leadership for you. And so would you not just pray for us, but would you please commit to praying for Doug Lehman, for Dan Best, for Brad Farha, as right now they continue to serve that kind of hybrid role, and, and you know, until we get away from that, I mean, that's, it is what it is, and, and that's not a sinful thing. The people who've gone before uh, weren't sinning by having that structure in place. It's just how they interpreted things. But would you please just commit to praying for all of us daily that we would guard ourselves, but then that we would also make sure that we are constantly alert and on guard for you. We need the empowerment of the Spirit. We need the empowerment of the Spirit. And so pray to that end, please. And uh, speaking of praying, let's do that now. Okay, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how clear it is I thank you for the pattern and the picture and the blueprints that you've provided. And I thank you that you have preserved the necessary warnings for your church and specifically for your your church leadership. Lord Jesus, you are the good shepherd. You are the head of the church. You are the head elder of your body. But it pleased you to establish other elders, other under-shepherds to shepherd and oversee your church under you and, and alongside you. And I thank you that you didn't just leave us alone to figure out how that should be and what that should look like. I thank you that you have made it clear in your word under the inspiration of your spirit as people like Paul and, and Peter and others wrote so specifically about this concept and this office of elder. And you left record of what we are to do as elders. What our main focus should be and how we should go about that. And and what we must be ourselves in order to be faithful, qualified elders. Thank you for what you've done in leaving us this pattern and this mandate in your word. I pray that you would help all of us to be faithful to your word. Help us to be obedient to what you have clearly established for us to do. And then by the power of your spirit, help us to walk in it and to live it out, I pray. And I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.